Hey, it's Nick back once again. Now, uh, there's no crazy emails or messages this time, so so we'll just jump straight to thanking all the people that have tuned in so far. The numbers keep on racking up, so that's really cool to see. However, if you haven't been part of that number before, and this is maybe your first time listening, then I would totally recommend that you go back and check out uh, the previous podcast. Uh, number four, the uh, the Tale of Two James Act New, as this is sort of the, the sequel, the Bert dates Ernie, so to speak, the Kit dates Cat. But if you want to dive right in, that, that's no sweat, because my kids don't do as I say either, so why should you? But whether first time or maybe fifth time, we play regardless, so we'll kick on and welcome you to episode five of the Irreverent History of Ulster podcast. How do you do, young James Agnew? Learn of the past, the answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. So just to recap, me and my dad, Henry, went to Passchendaele to check out all things World War One. We were we were as excited as kids in Candyland, but I was worried that it might not translate to you, that, that it would be a bit dry. I mean, how do you jazz up trips to museums and graveyards? It's not like I'm telling you about my family trip to Salou, where we went to the theme park and on the roller coaster at the end, all roller coasters, called a Shambhala. And as, as we queued, my brother kept talking about dying, which didn't help my growing anxiety, then yelled, Tonight we dine in hell, over and over, as we ascended the upteen hundred foot incline. So I'm not going to tell you about that about how I shrieked like a little girl as the clacking stopped and we descended at warp speed towards the ground. Now, this is not that kind of story. As I alluded to, it's it's the companion to the preceding podcast and I was a little worried that it might dullify your life, you know. So I was just going to make it short until something happened when we were away. Something that got me maybe a bit too excited. Something I just had to share. Something almost unbelievable. So I'm glad I took photos. Yeah, I'm building it up, probably over-egging uh, this particular pudding, and I just hope it's not a total anticlimax for you, because it certainly wasn't for me. It was really cool. As it was happening, I felt like Neo, you know, just having swallowed the red pill, Kansas, well and truly going bye-bye. So if you want to find out what I'm banging on about here, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. As a way of getting the historical juices flowing pre passion deal, me and my dad took a trip to the Saw Museum in Conlake, which is uh, between Ards and Bangor. I've driven past it like a billion times, but I've never, never gone in. But I took my dad and three kids, and it was brilliant. I really couldn't recommend it high enough if World War One is your thing. Saying that, I did leave feeling a little rueful, as if I'd gone there before I recorded the last podcast, I wouldn't have had to do nearly half as much bloody research. It was all about the Ulster 36th and the Irish 16th Divisions, plus an Irish 10th Division that I'd never heard of. I was like one of those annoying games, you know, fires his hand up to answer all the guides' questions before anyone else even gets a chance. But for me, the big question was, did he know the answers to mine? And yeah, he did, to be fair. He's a, a properly deep insight into the period and got quite excited when we told him about our planned trip and about Jamesy. That was on them Friday, and invigorated by our, our little history hit, we set off on the Monday evening for Brussels via a brief overnight stay and a really early morning flight in Dublin. As we as we crossed the border from Ulster to Leinster, it was like a portent, a warning, as the rains came on hard lashing from the heavens, as my old ma would say. I couldn't help think if this was to be the start of it, the start of the torrential downpour, such as that that fell, you know, in Paxendale a hundred years previous, and it seems that... I was maybe being a touch dramatic as it was sunny when we touched down in Brussels, but, you know, that didn't spare me from the wrath of my dad, who kind of scolded me for not having a waterproof jacket. 
You'd think I'd know by now, but it somehow had decided to tell him before we boarded the plane, and only escaped from Lecturville when he nodded off. For me, it was a happy consequence of him slurping too much wine and getting too little sleep the night before. Ah, when he couldn't, Dad, you're a good spot, but it was good to have you sleep, you know. I will say, though, that I did enjoy setting foot on the runway in Brussels and seeing the sun blazing. I couldn't help, couldn't help but smirk at my dad removing his raincoat. But you know, I said nothing. There'll be plenty of time for raking him later, you know. But see, Brussels, it's, it's one of those modern, well-planned-out airports that has a train station contained within it, so it's really easy to get about. And we jumped on board one of the trains and headed to Ypres. It's a town at the heart of Passchendaele. With the, with the kind of city in our rear view, you know, you start to hit the countryside and it seems just like Ireland. Green fields, villages, church spires rising high. But as we approach deeper, the landscape changes slightly. What looks like, like large white teeth begin to appear in the distance, poking up through the dirt, all arranged in, in neat and tidy rows. They're the cemeteries, the resting place for the dead of the war. And as we saw the first one, I'll admit I was a little excited, kind of wide-eyed as it, as it turned into a white blur as we sped past, and it came for the second, and maybe the third, but after like the umpteenth time, the fervour's replaced by realisation, maybe even comprehension, a comprehension of just how many people, how many soldiers never left there. Around half a million, maybe. But you hear that, you hear hundreds of thousands of graves, and you just think, whoa, but you move on. It's difficult to get a, a perspective when the number is just that vast. You know, uh, Russian dictator and mass murderer Joseph Stalin said, the death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. Which seems crass, but it's quite true, so, so let's see if this helps you contextualise it. Take all the supporters from the opening weekend of the English Premier League. About 400,000 people across the 10 stadiums. All those little faces you see singing or silent, depending on how their team is doing. Or always silent if you're at Old Trafford, that is. Now add in the players, the coaches, the hot dog sellers, the cleaners, the bubbles, the whole shebang. And picture them all disappearing. And that gets you close, but that's just the graves. It does not include the missing on the memorials. And it's a truly a mind-blowing amount of dead. With the caveat that more bones and remains are still being found every single day. It's with that kind of sombre vibe that we arrived in April, and it was deserted. As we walked from the station and through the cobbled streets, all the shops were closed. There was no one in the parks, just no one about. Just as there had been barely a soul in the train. The only sounds there were the eerie echoes of my case being dragged along behind me. Again, somewhere in the back of my mind, I got a little excited. All my PlayStation training on Resident Evil and The Last of Us had prepared me for such a moment, you know, for when the zombie horde would attack. But just as I was about to start sharpening sticks, uh, a guy cycled past whistling on his bike. It turns out that it was the final day of the Assumption of Mary festival, which is basically a bank holiday, and everyone was sleeping off the effects the night before. So with mild disappointment, I headed for the In Flanders Fields Museum so named after the famous poem by Canadian Joe McRae, which I was praying was open because if it wasn't, I mean, what would we do? You can't just spend all day jumping between bars and drinking all the Belgian beer, can you? Fret not, however, as it was fighting convention and was open for business. Situated in the, the old cloth hall, it's a building that was pretty much total during the war, as was the majority of the time. Just in case you're not sure what Passchendaele is, and you haven't listened to the last podcast like I asked. I mean, it's fine. I won't hold it against you for long. But Passchendaele was a battle. Well, one of three large battles consisting of many smaller battles that occurred in West Flanders during the Great War, which 
uh, Edmund Blackadder describes as a war which would be a damn sight simpler if we just stayed in England and shot 50,000 of our own men a week. In 120 odd days of fighting at Passchendaele, where it was not just the Germans who were the enemy, but also the flood-like rain and the battlefield that turned into a morass, the Allies made headway of about 8 kilometres, suffering an absolutely whopping 320,000 casualties, which if you do the mass, is a dead soldier or, oh, sorry, a dead or wounded soldier for every two and a half centimetres of territory. I mean, the, the sting in the tail there, if that wasn't sting enough, is that less than half a year later the Germans took it all back, plus some. The architect of that battle was a much maligned British Army Commander Field Marshal Haig, and we will be sticking the boot into him later, so don't worry about that. Ypres, where the museum is, is the largest town in West Flanders. I was pretty much in conflict for the whole of the war, getting completely devastated in the process. It was all rebuilt after, and looks fantastic now, really modern, paid for by the reparations from the war, which was a really nice touch by the crowds, even if they did kick off about it again a few years later. The museum itself was part of the city-wide rebuild, and it's, it's really cool to look at, with some really nice exhibits in there, but... I find it a little bland, if I'm honest. It seems to take the stance of not glorifying the war and showing the futility of it all instead, which, I mean, that reflects the sturgid, pointless battles that took place, exemplified by the, the attritional nature of Passchendaele itself. I get that, I really do, but it doesn't really make for the greatest of exhibitions. Maybe I do have to catch myself on a bit here and be, ironically, a bit more reverent, but I honestly prefer the Somme exhibit. It had what I was after. I wanted big info on the Ulster's rule in the battles, you know, Irish blood and Flanders mud. But the references to them were scarce, if, if they were even there at all. Still, for, for a general history lesson, I suppose it's pretty good, and has a massively big bell tower, with no lift, so you have to scale the 236 odd steps yourself. It gave me an idea as to how Eon, Winston, Peter and Ray must have felt when they had to ascend the stairs of 55 Central Park West, you know, the battle gozer. But obviously with no Sigourney waiting for me at the top, which was a bit of a shame, I'll be honest. Just for her to hold my hand as I was totally breaking up when we hit the fresh air of the outside roof. And I had to deal with a 69 year old man clinging to my back. Now, just to stop tongues wagging, yes, that is my dad, Henry on my back there. I have been blessed, or possibly cursed is a more accurate term, with his dislike and uh, disdain for heights. I mean, we must have looked so brave, both of us clinging to the inner wall, you know, hardly able to use the binoculars or taking the displays that show all the kind of action areas, you know, from Hill 60 and Zonabeek to Polygonwood and Langemark. And Langemark is, of course, uh, from where the two James like you never escape. I'm not really sure what I was expecting to see from that vantage point of the bell tower. You know, when it did actually look over the edge, but it all just looked so normal, you know, from that distance at least. I knew it wouldn't be an untouched, authentic war zone, so to speak, but for it to just look so every day was a little unsettling. A reminder maybe that despite all the death and carnage, people are just so resilient and, and they survive and they move on. I suppose this includes the kind of war tourism, which is a bit of a double-edged sword, as as I'm part of it. In Ypres, on tours of battlefields and cemeteries, with, with shops selling crosses uh, and wreaths and soldier figurines, with like restaurants named after battles and pubs called after wars, there, there's, there's even a Flanders Fields beer mats and playing cards. I suppose that, that that's just what happens, you know, capitalism at its finest, but... Like I say, I can't complain or even really comment at all as I'm fueling that economy by just being there. But, I mean, it's strange nonetheless. Anyway, I've 
have two things to add about the museum visit. The first is that it was discussed that the Catholic Church was the first real kind of power to use propaganda effectively and to, to get their message across to the masses. You know, taglines such as believe or die, pray or burn, that sort of sentiment and the effect they had in the populace was, was seen as a big influence on the smear campaigns that thrived during the period, you know, 1914 to 1918, showing the other side is devils and all that sort of stuff. As the saying goes, you know, the truth is the first casualty of war. I think that's very true. I really wanted to interject, however, and ask the guy if he'd ever heard of the ancient Irish clan O'Neill and their alternative facts, but I didn't because I would have just looked like a bit of a twat, well, more of a twat, and sometimes you just need to keep quiet, don't you? Now, secondly, there was an exhibition of photos by Ian Oldham called Recovering the Past. He he meshes new photos of the Dovo City or bomb disposal units of Belgium, who are still, they still get calls of unexploded World War One shells to this very day. Well, he blends in with older photos of the Australian Army taken by a guy called Frank Hurley, a wartime photographer who himself meshed photos together to create a more explosive content or fake news as kind of now known. He was basically just photoshopping them. Alderman's work based on that is incredibly haunting. It's, it's really, really well done. I really recommend you look at it. And I, I linked it in the show at irreverenthistory.com slash 005 if you want to have a look and see what I mean. Now, Alderman's work was the was the last exhibit we saw before leaving the museum and grabbing uh, an imaginatively titled Battle Burger, then heading off to, to drop her gear at the hotel. And at the moment, my dad is uh, he's enrolled in a Queen's University senior citizen pedometer experiment and he just wants to bloody walk everywhere just to get a step count up. I, I really encourage it because it's really good to see that he's still got that competitive edge and he still wants to be top of the class. But it meant that it was over an hour later that we finally arrived at the hotel and got checked in. By then, we were both very ready for a beer. A whole garden to be exact. Oh, you know, it's so good. It reminds me of uh, time spent at the Cottier's Bar in Glasgow. Then we each had a Lefe Blonde. Slightly different flavour, but oh, it's just as good. I, was, I mean, I was, you can maybe tell, but I was really starting to get a taste for it just as our taxi arrived. I had I strategically pointed out earlier to him that the distance to the pond farm, which was our next stop, meant that walking there, it, it just wasn't an option. Not if we wanted to be back before nightfall. And he put up little resistance as I think we we're both a bit knackered. So we gleefully kind of jumped into the taxi and off we set. Now the pond farm is a private working farm that has been in the hands of a guy called Steen's family since around 1945. He's a, he's a farmer by trade and became fascinated with the history and the artefacts he kept on earth and while, whilst working the grounds, so he decided to set up his own museum. It's in a small barn that smells deeply of farm, but you shouldn't forget that as it's, it's, it's absolutely rammed chock full of some incredible finds. There's serrated bayonets, tank parts, discarded rifles, hand-carved shell casings, and outside he has a small artillery gun and even an underground German bunker that he had to dig out himself. As you enter the barn, there, there's a large wooden tree trunk that he asked visitors to sign on behalf of their fallen relatives, and we added Jamesy's name to that list. But interestingly, when, when I was kind of inspecting, you see German names etched on it. Like, I was a bit shocked by that, but you can sometimes forget that they were people too. Many were also just kids caught up in the misinformation, told that the glory of the state is everything. When really the state generally doesn't give two shits about you. It just wants you to pay your taxes and fight its war and, and it blinds you with rhetoric. So it's easy to get caught up in the propaganda, say, of Huns being inhumane, being monsters. It's almost like, as a kid, you thought teachers were just automatons, you know, wheeled out to teach, then put back in a cupboard or something, arising the next day like Dracula when called upon by the school bell. 
to be fair, that assumption was kind of shattered early on for us because we met one of our student teachers out in the bar, Cole Woolsey's in Banker, and she was looking rather racy, I might add, compared to her usual school garb anyway. So much so that one of my mates, who, uh, who shall not be named, even claimed to have pulled her. Now, whether he did or not remains a debate, but it showed that teachers were actually human after all, having lives of their own, and hopefully with the wit to reject my mate. Now, it's probably a bit strange that looking at that, uh, that kind of totem pole-esque memorial log and seeing the German names inscribed on it made me think of that night in Woolsey's. But it also led me to thinking about how the mass manipulation works, how it seeps into your mind and, and moulds your opinion without even realising it. How I had only seen a one-dimensional view of teachers, I suppose, and therefore just assumed that that was all there was to know. That they, they had nothing else to them, nothing else to offer. Just like how, during the war, the citizens back home were fed horror stories and alternative facts, to, to use a modern term, and that, that was to skew their opinions and manipulate their reactions to what was going on. Growing up, I, I was always led to believe that it was only the evil enemy that tried to deceive you, but it seems really that your own government are just as capable of lying to you as well. Who knew? But anyway, that tangent aside, let's get back on track and talk about Steen's tank. Yeah, that was a rubbish connection right there, you know, tanks and tracks, I'm actually almost embarrassed they've said it, but let's choose instead to feast upon the fact that Steen is building his very own Mark IV tank, shall we? He uses the, the donations that the visitors give to fund it, and my dad, being an engineer by trade, was in his absolute element. Those two were yakking about it for ages, pointing and prodding and peeping inside, discussing methods of laser cutting, alloy construction or something, I mean all sorts of guff that I just didn't understand. I just thought it looked pretty cool, which it definitely does. He's uh, he's even integrating pieces of an actual tank that he found in his farm to form part of it, but he has to wait. It, it's crazy. It, it's a working farm, and the field in which he found the tank parts currently has crops growing in them. Have done for the last couple of years, so he's been waiting youngs, but in a month or two, it's going back into, into rotation. So it'll be free again, and he has his metal detectors ready to tear that place apart, searching for other bits of that tank. So it took a bit of cajoling, but I finally prized him away from it. And as we walked, Stain told us some stories about finding artillery and ammo in the working fields. There's one about his dad, when he was plowing the fields and, and accidentally set off a, a gas grenade. His wife heard him screaming and thought he was calling for help, but as she ran to rescue him, he sent her back to get his camera so she could capture the drama on film, and that photo now has pride of place in the museum. If I remember correctly, it's a picture of his dad jumping from the tractor as the white cloud of gas descends upon him. Steen also spoke of uh, finding bones almost daily and how the local police just can't cope anymore. I mean, it's a little surreal that these events have become so normal to him, like bodies and bombs in your back garden. I mean, it's as if he's grown up in Ulster in the 80s, like, isn't it? Now, towards the end of the tour, I spoke to him about Jamesy and Irish Jay. I mean, that was inevitable. And how I thought both had died nearby. When I showed him a map of where I believe Jamesy fell, he knew it instantly. As it was, it was just out the back of his farm where it joined with Fort Hill. I mean, I kind of had suspected that, which was a big reason why we were visiting that farm in the first place. He took us to the point I'd shown him. And we walked down these, these tracks of clay between the fields. I mean, it was that, that Passchendaele clay. The same stuff that gummed at the soldiers' boots like a hundred years ago as they struggled across the battlefields. Now, I'm a bit odd with my trainers in the sense that I don't tie my laces. I haven't done since I was about eight. And I kept stepping out of my shoes as they stuck fast in the mud. And that's 
that's after merely a skinless sludge. You know, after only a few hours drizzle the night before, that is nothing to what the soldiers had to endure after weeks of, of like torrential rainfall. Now, despite the shoe issue, we pressed on through the mud and arrived at the field where there was uh, already a memorial, a wreath to a soldier who fought for the Gloucesters, a guy called Charles Sidney Ward. Uh, the Gloucesters fought in the 48th Division on the left the left flank of the Ulster 36, right beside where Jamesy would have been. The wreath, uh, it had been placed there that morning by, by his family and I couldn't help but think, I mean, that's awesome. You know, just how many people are doing the similar pilgrimage to that of me and my dad. I'd never never really overly thought of it that much, but it was just incredible. You know, how many people from, from all over the Commonwealth were descending upon Flanders to pay their respects? It, I mean, it really is a humbling thought to think that we're all doing this similar trail to that of our ancestors, obviously in much greater comfort, although we did fly Ryanair, so maybe not. Like we, we both stood there, me and Henry, looking out across the massive field of corn as it is now, and I didn't really know what to do. I just kind of stood there and pondered, you know. I was kind of thinking of how he died and how many died in the ground before his eyes, our eyes. You know, his Wixart DNA runs in that field. Loads of family DNA is messed up in that field, you know, feeding the soil with its nutrients. But, but what do you say? I mean, we just kind of stood there in, in like an eerie silence. I mean, I eventually broke up by taking a few photos and uh, then I, sh- I took this opportunity to show Stain where we thought where Irish GA had died. It was it was a farm just outside a town called Fresenberg, hauntingly called Vampire Farm. He he told us how to get there, we thanked him, said how good his tour was, gave him a small donation, said our goodbyes and then we heard off to take a pick of that death site too. And don't get me wrong here, I do realise it's a bit morbid, you know, maybe even sordid, you know, taking photos of where people died. But that's what we do, isn't it? You know, remembering the fallen by capturing their final resting place on camera. You know, just to show everyone back home and to share it through social media for all the world to see. When the snaps were done, uh, the, the taxi then whizzed us off to the Men in Gate. Now, that's not to be confused with the Men in Black, which is a shit film from the 90s, but probably more culturally recognisable by many many of my age and, and below, which seems almost incredulous, but is an expose, I suppose, as to the society we live in. And that's me getting all pretentious there, by the way. But it's hard not to when you're talking about the Menning Gate. It, it's such a glorious building. And hardly anyone's heard of it. I mean, it's a tunnel of archways and marble with the names of 54,395 Commonwealth soldiers engraved upon it. And they're all those that perished in the Ypres salient up to the 15th of August 1917, but whose bodies have never been knowingly recovered. It was built in 1927, and... Uh, the last post, which we played at the end of the last podcast, has been played there by the local fire service at 20 hundred hours on the dot every single night since the 2nd of July 1928, with the small exception of when it was occupied by the Nazis in World War II, which would have made it quite difficult. But see, as soon as the Polish forces liberated it, the ceremony was resumed. Literally that night, even with the battle raging just a couple of hundred metres down the road, in total... It is more than 32,500 times that the bugle has sounded from under that hallowed roof. That's one of the reasons we went to Ypres as well. And that's why me and my dad tried to get there early. A little too early, it turned out. But it's supposed to be busy. We were told half seven was a good time. And by the 24 o'clock, we made it 1917, coincidentally. That's not true. But it would have been cool. But it was just after seven. So we went for a pint in a local pub which was awesome, especially on such a warm, sort of sticky day as it was. 
And one of my mates had told me that a Dubel, Dubel beer was a must. Called it a brown Belgium Trappist beer. But in heat hands, heavily, like full paper pants type job. So I was a little sceptical, but to be fair, he was right. They were, they were lush, even if the colour of the beer mirrored that of his skin. Maybe that's why he liked it, you know, an accessory to match his painstakingly crafted outfit. Earlier, when we were leaving the taxi, I'd asked the driver where exactly the bugler bugled, and he had pointed to a large white dimple in the road. So, when we finished the beer, we kind of ambled back to the gate and secured ourselves quite in the viewing spot. I, I, I stood there, you know, rosy with alcohol, all kind of pleased with myself, when this British regiment marched in and stood kind of perpendicular to us, but a few yards closer to the bugle spot. It kind of masked my view a little. I sort of huffed for a second or two, but then I thought, nah, nah, it's fine. I can just manoeuvre myself a little bit and still get a great shot. So I did. But then, just as I was about to start, some owl... European Hagener mate trundled in, you know, squeezed between me and the army troop. I mean, it really reduced my already impaired view, and it's kind of got my back up a little, as I'm sure it would most people, especially as they started raising their cameras to get their own pics, you know, wafting them in front of me. I wanted to grab them, throw them in the river. That's the phone, that is, not the hags, but maybe the hags. But what annoyed me most was that I was standing behind a railing. That railing is a clear demarcation point. An unmistakable barricade that tells everyone cue from here, and they didn't. They just skipped in front of cheeky bastards. It made me go all Brexity. I wanted to crack up, but instead, I just muttered a few curse words under my breath and got over it. It's not really the time or place for taking umbrage, was it? All things considered. Then before I knew it, the ceremony started with, with some important looking guy that I could hardly see, saying a few words of respect that I could hardly hear, and I'm not trying to be rude or glib, I'm just stating facts there, but then... The buglers marched to their spot and four of them played the last post and I needn't have worried. You could have heard that no matter where you stood. It sounded right through me. It was awesome and the crowd was so respectful. It was just so emotional. I mean, grown men shedding tears. Obviously not me and my dad, no way. I mean, we're stoic as get out. But despite my many obstacles, I managed to crane enough to take a video of the buglers. But I ran out of storage, so I didn't quite get it all. In it, you can see the two uh, biatches that bundled in front of me, waving their phones in the air like they just don't care. And... They obviously didn't. Interestingly, if, if kind of surprisingly, I saw her at breakfast the next day in the hotel and she smiled at me. And the, the kind of smile that, that I took to mean that she knew exactly what she had done. Or, or maybe I was just being paranoid, but, you know, I took the moral high ground. I smiled back and then I beat her to the coffee machine. And I was in no hurry when I was pouring myself a cappuccino. You know, right back at you, you hag, you know, boom. Anyway, after finishing at the gate, we uh, we went for a quick and awesome burger at Paul's Boutique, which honestly a double burger was absolutely beautiful, and then fired into the Old Bill pub to watch Liverpool Hoffenheim game and sample some more of the, the Trappist taps, you know. As, as the beer kind of flowed, uh, so did the chat, and we started bantering with some of the clientele, of which I don't think there was a single local. Everybody seemed to be on a remembrance tour, you know, fully paid up members of the 100 Year Club, all in Belgium to pay their respects to their fallen relatives. I mean, there was some Irish, some Anzacs, but mostly Canadian. I mean, it was fascinating to hear their stories of their ancestors, how they died or how they escaped or how some of their uncles returned while leaving brothers behind. And I kind of paralleled James Laurie, you know, Jamesy's uncle, coming home while Jamesy himself did not. That must have been so hard for him to deal with, especially if, if, because he was the elder, the default protector. You would imagine there would be a feeling of guilt there, like a heavy heart compounding the grief. Even though the events were so far beyond his control, 
Not so, however, for Field Marshal Haig, the supreme British commander. I mean, what onus lies at his door? He chose the generals, the battlefield, he chose the strategy, he chose to keep fighting an attritional war despite the gargantuan losses, almost as if he wanted to take the name of, of a Pyrrhic victory all for himself. He was, however, lauded as a hero when he returned to Britain, despite never being given another command, ever, which surely speaks volumes. Now, some of the Canadians in the bar made their opinions of him clear, dropping the sea bomb on more than one occasion. I mean, the hatred in their eyes was, was palpable, showcasing the power and emotive feeling the Great War still wields, even now, a full century later. Haig, Haig was known by his men as, as the Butcher, for obvious reasons. And while Haig Bashan takes us slightly off course, I feel I have to add this final quote by historian John Keegan. On the psalm, Haig had sent the flower of British youth to death or mutilation, at Passchendaele he had tipped the survivors in the sloth of despond. That says it all, doesn't it? And after a few more beers and more than a few glasses of red wine, we, we headed back to the hotel where in a quite inebriated state I decided it was a really, really good idea to tell Mike to happy the podcast. Now, I kind of kept it from him mainly because I swear a bit and I cracked the old blue joke. And he's my dad, so it's a little bit embarrassing there. I only played him a small sample and he seemed to enjoy it, but he did suggest that I try not to fucking swear so much. But I like swearing, so I'm not sure how that'll work out, but honestly, I'll give it a rip. The next morning, after seemingly meeting every Irish person in Ypres at breakfast and, and getting told repeatedly by one of them to eat Macross, which is actually quite funny, uh, we went to Tynecott Memorial, the main reason for our trip, and it was, it was there that the story gets even more interesting. But how can it, I hear you ask, or maybe how can it not, but either way, let's push on and uh, I'll tell you everything. When you arrive at Tynecott, which we did by taxi, not walking because hangovers and distance are a potent walking deterrent, but when you arrive you see a low, wide mound with hundreds upon hundreds of handcrafted poppies planted in it. Though I'm not really sure why, so if you know that info then hook me up because I couldn't find out. It may have something to do with the, the constant sombre female voice that does a roll call for the missing. She sort of announces all the names that can be found on the memorial wall and the date of their death. I, w- I would have really liked, probably loved to have heard the names of the two James Agnew in the air, but with close to 35,000 names in that wall, you could have been there for days. Well, two days, maybe, as I worked it out that if one's announced every five seconds for 24 hours, you'd get just over 17,000 a day, which which is just insane. I mean, try reciting even 12 names, one every five seconds. That's, that's just one minute, and it seems to take an age. It's just another way to get, get context of the vast quantity of men that are still missing. Another way is to walk around the visitor's path towards the, the entrance. There, there you can peep over the walls and see some of the gravestones, but it is only really when you enter that cemetery that you get the full, uh, like, unshielded impact of the rows upon rows of headstones. There's 11,965 to be exact, of which an incredible 8,369 are unnamed. That's almost 9,000 bodies that couldn't be identified. It's like the end of Saving Private Ryan. I mean, it's just a sea of green with white headstones rising from the ground every few feet. In the middle of the cemetery is the Cross of Sacrifice, which sits atop a, a German pillbox that was captured by the Australian 3rd Division. 
It's, it's resplendent, keeping watch over the dead and missing, but on this day it was crowded by teenagers drinking coke and moping about as their parents paid their respects. Me and my dad, again, after a few moments of uncharacteristic reverence, uh, headed for the memorial wall at the far, far end. Uh, we'd looked up like the location of the Royal Irish Rifles beforehand, and as the panels are all handily numbered, we found it quite quickly, and then there we stood, the culmination of our trip, you know, taking selfies with James, an Irish Jay. We weren't alone, with like around around 10,000 allied men dying at the Battle of Langmark, and many of them dying on the 16th of August 1917. There were a fair few Irish relatives among the Hunter Club. I met uh, a local historian, a guy called Lester Morrow. He's local to me anyways, he's just up from up the road in Cumber. He was overpaying his respects and was, was really helpful in filling in a few blanks for me. There was, there was also a guy from London who was there to pay homage to his granda, who was a cockney, but served in the, in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. He kind of, he was just sort of glibly asked, you know, how he'd ended up there, and, and Lester spoke of how the devastation kind of suffered by so many Irish units at the Somme meant that they had to be backfilled from other areas. As I continued to chat about the Fusiliers, I kind of drifted back to James's name, and this is what I've been waiting to tell you, the big reveal. And I know I'm putting pressure on myself here, but I really just hope you think it's as mad as I do. So right, picture this, the names, the names are written on panels, you know, three columns wide with about, say, 200 names per panel. So in the entire memorial, there's about 170 panels, making up maybe 35,000 soldiers' names. And, and these panels fill the top section of the cemetery, plus plus a little bit more. The panels would be about uh, a metre and a metre and a half wide. And beneath each one, there's there runs a bed of pebbles. like That's adorned with like reefs and small wooden crosses, that kind of thing. You know, messages from families to their missing loved ones. I, I wrote on the cross to Jamesy, but uh, I'm so daft. I did it in like a felt tip sharpie, which soaked right into the wood. And I expanded the words and made it look like my four-year-old had wrote it. It's really classy, like, but... I was grumbling a little bit slightly then after I'd done that and I wedged it in the stones between a large wreath and a few other crosses and then took a few photos of it, kind of reluctantly almost. Then I noticed the wreath. It had the red hand in the middle of a shamrock. So while it was the Royal Irish Rifles, it was definitely YCV or Young Citizen Volunteers. And that's the main group that formed the 14th Royal Irish Rifles, which was James's unit. You know, being a bit uh, of a nosy guy at times and kind of, you know, but this especially about history here. I read the note attached to the wreath, which was enclosed in like a waterproof cover. And upon reading it, I mean, I nearly fainted. Well, more swooned in like a manly manner, of course. But it said, 100 years since you sacrificed your life in the Great War. Agnew Grave, I think it says Grave. You will never be forgotten by your family in Northern Ireland and Scotland for the courage you laid down. You will be forever 19. I mean, Jesus wept. So nearly did me and Henry. Forever 19? That had to be Jamesy. I knew. I mean, I, lo- I looked back at the panel, checking through all the officers and soldiers of the Royal Irish Rifles to see if somehow I'd missed an Agnew. But it was only Jamesy, an Irish J, with that name. It had to be for him. I flipped the note over to see if there were any clues as to who could have left it, but there was nothing on the back of the card. But I stood up and started looking about. 100 years since you sacrificed your life. That, that's what it's hid. Was somebody else here on a pilgrimage to Jamesy on this very day? Have we just missed them? Were they still here? 
We looked, we looked about, but how could you tell? You can't exactly start screaming out of the graveyard. It's like the outdoor version of a library in volume terms. But Dad suggested to check the back of the wreath, and I may possibly have let out a bit of a girly scream as I did just that. There wasn't anything on the back of the wreath, but there were two crosses hidden behind it, a little faded over time. We leaned in closer to inspect them, and both were for James I knew. I thought, surely not. It had to be Irish Jerry. He had to get one of them. But no, both were to James Agnew, 42470, died 16-8, 1917, aged 19. Both were in the same pen, the same handwriting. One said, never forgotten by family in Belfast. And the other said, always remembered by his uncle James, who fought alongside him. That's James Laurie again. That's the uncle from earlier, who signed up at, at 30 with Jamesy, who was 16. I felt like Indiana Jones uncovering some lost treasure. You and my dad, therefore, can be short round, you know, the sidekick. We both looked at each other pretty much speechless, having to take a minute to process the coincidence. If you think about it, of the five crosses and one wreath beneath this panel, which has 200 odd names on it, the wreath itself and three of the crosses were for Jamesy. While the wreath stated Northern Ireland and Scotland, the cross narrowed it down to Belfast and the Lorries. So they had been there. Maybe we're still there. Another branch of the family travelling from afar to honour a 19 year old kid that none of us knew will never know, yet it somehow, somehow has this uh, deeply emotional connection with us. You know, not just me and my dad now, not just me and Henry, but these other members of the genetic line too. It, it took me a few seconds to recover my composure and decided to take a few more photos and a video as well. For me, obviously, but also to show people that I wasn't making this up. If it was written in a book, it would be rejected as ridiculous too outlandish a plot, wouldn't it? Bear in mind that I only started investigating this a few months ago. Up until then, I didn't really know much about Jamesy. Just chat passed down through the family, but... I'm quite far removed from the primary sources, you know, the youngest son of the youngest son, which makes this sound like a tagline from some ancient martial arts movie, and yet here I was, standing at the memorial with my dad, looking at crosses and wreaths left by another branch of our blood. So after consulting with Henry, here's here's what we've decided to do, and to do it we may need your help, in fact we know we do need your help. We're going to try and trace the people who left the wreath, and I mean we didn't need any Hollywood script writers in, you know, to draw up that twist. I mean, it could lead the embarrassment for me, as I took a few assumptions in the last podcast, and they may have a more accurate understanding of James's past, but for the sake of history, I will make that sacrifice. Not fully intentional pomposity there, but like I say, this topic has consumed me over the past few weeks, so it's well worth the chance of being proved wrong to uncover anything that lifts the veil, even just a little. So if you want to help us find out who left a wreath, then if you know an Agnew or a Laurie, then drop them a tag on Facebook or, or share them the podcast link or even go fully old school and just plain ask them if they had a relative who died in the war, especially if they or their relative are called James. That seems to be the common name in all of this. If they did, then if you could ask them to contact me at irreverenthistory at gmail.com or on the website irreverenthistory.com or on Facebook or my Instagram davetree69 or in my telegram, or by letter, or by bloody bat signal, if that suits better. Any way possible is good, as I just know, I just know they would have pieces to help fill in the jigsaw. Maybe even a photo of Jamesy, a meme of that, you know, would really appreciate if you did that. Now, as a little epilogue here, we need to just go back to the men and gate once more. A quick chat on how it felt to be there, under that roof, surrounded by the tens of thousands of names of the missing. 
it, it really made me wonder why it all happened in the first place. And I don't mean the shot by Gravillo Princep. More, more how it was allowed to happen. How so many kids were sent to die in the mud. It all seemed so futile, so unnecessary, and is summed up superbly by Bob Dylan in his controversial 1963 uh, anti-war anthem, With God on Our Side, as read by Henry, my dad, who introduced me to the song. Well, take it away there, big dog. The First World War, boys, it came and it went. The reason for fighting, I never did get. But I learned to accept it, accept it with pride. For you don't count the dead when God's on your side. Well said, Henry. Bob too, I suppose. And the rest of the song is 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 also dripping with irony and poignancy as well. You know, well to me anyway. I mean, it, it kind of puts stuff, stupid stuff, into perspective. Like when those hags coiled into the gap in front of me. I mean, I still got a pretty decent video of the last post, so it didn't really matter. Now that video will will be on the website and the recently created Facebook page. If you just search for Reverend History of Ulster in Facebook if you want to find that. There's also some cool pictures of the trip which go into further detail of all the stuff we've talked about here. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast or the photos or whatever, you know, likes and shares and follows and nice comments are all appreciated in SoundCloud or iTunes or Stitcher or Facebook. I mean, the list is endless, but it all helps not just to improve our rankings, but it also makes us feel good about ourselves, you know? We morale booster to help you through the day. Well, as we did in the last podcast, we're going to finish with the last post, but this time it is live from the Menin Gate, recorded in my iPhone. And, oh, sorry, just to say, the uh, the next podcast is about the Vikings. So until then, here's the last post. Raiders. <laughs>